Welcome to Season 2 of The Jewish Story, a Jewish history podcast for the 21st century. In this show, we'll take a look back at the history of the Jewish people, relying on historical documents, archaeological artifacts, and linguistic data to paint a picture of the past. Before we jump into the episode, I wanted to first thank all of you who have listened to the first season of the show. I so appreciate all of the support, and it's been amazing to see such a wide listenership develop from all across the globe. In honor of you all, I decided it was about time to create an official Jewish Story email address, where you can send your comments, questions, suggestions, arguments, anything you have to offer. I will look through every message and may even read some at the top of each episode. So, send it all to jewishstorypod at gmail.com. That's jewishstorypod at gmail.com. And with that, let's dive in to Season 2 of The Jewish Story. We ended last season in the year 70 CE, with the Romans destroying the Second Temple in Jerusalem, causing mass Jewish casualties. We also saw Yochanan ben Zakkai and his troop of Pharisees flee to the town of Yavne and found the first yeshiva, or academy of Torah study. Throughout the time period of season 1, Jews had gone from a people centered primarily in Judea and northern Egypt to a group spread throughout the Roman Empire including north into Greece and Rome, east into Mesopotamia, and south deeper into Egypt, and even the coast of North Africa. This means that season two will be bigger, broader, and more complex. In this first episode, we will pick up our story right where we left off, with Jerusalem burning, the second temple destroyed, and the surviving zealots fleeing south towards the Dead Sea to the ancient Hasmonean fort at Masada. Once the Romans had finally broken through Jerusalem's walls in 70 CE, they tore through the city, looting and burning as they went, with one of their central targets being the Second Temple, the linchpin of Jewish life. Roman soldiers raided the temple, gathering up all of the various treasures housed within it, including the Holy Menorah, and eventually brought them back to Rome as trophies, to be put on display in the newly constructed Temple of Peace, which was essentially one of the earliest colonial museums, funded with stolen gold and silver from Judea. The Jewish residents of Jerusalem were left scrambling for their lives. Some, like the young girl whose remains were found in the burnt house, died in the flames. Others were rounded up by the Roman soldiers, paraded through the streets, and publicly tortured and executed. But some Jews managed to escape, fleeing to nearby lands like Egypt, Cyprus, and Mesopotamia to start new lives. Much of the mythology about the end of the First Roman-Jewish War focuses on one particularly famous group of survivors, the Zealots, a group of violent Jewish extremists who had stormed Jerusalem just prior to the Roman invasion. Some of these Zealots had managed to escape Jerusalem and retreat south, where they took refuge in the ancient Hasmonean fort on Mount Masada, the same fort which the Maccabees had once used as a home base, and which Herod the Great had expanded into a palace during his reign. This group of zealot fugitives managed to hide out at Masada for three whole years, surviving on whatever food and supplies they could get their hands on. But in 73 CE, the Roman general Silva marched on the mountain fortress with his legion. Silva's soldiers set up siege engines and ramps and climbed Masada's walls to finish off the last of the Jewish rebels. As the Jews watched the Roman soldiers closing in, 
Eliezer, one of the group's leaders, proposed that the Jews commit collective suicide before the Romans could get their hands on them. He is quoted as saying, Let our wives die before they are abused, and our children before they have tasted slavery. And after we have slain them, let us bestow that glorious benefit upon one another mutually, and preserve ourselves in freedom. But it was just as the Jews were beginning to martyr themselves that the Roman forces broke into the fortress. While the Romans tortured and killed the remaining Jews, one of the last Jewish rebels set the fortress on fire and stabbed himself through the heart. Only one elderly woman and five children survived the Masada massacre. As horrific as all of this was, the First Roman-Jewish War was actually a critical turning point in the relationship between the Jews and Romans. As we learned last season, there had always been tension between Jews and Romans rooted in cultural differences. But after this major conflict, the tension exploded into open revulsion. Although Judaism was still a religio licita, or tolerated religion, under Roman law, it was becoming more and more reviled by the Romans. The Roman emperor who ruled during the First Roman-Jewish War, Emperor Vespasian, died in 79 CE, and for a short while he was replaced by his son, Titus. But two years later, a new emperor took the throne, and it was under him that anti-Jewish racism began to manifest itself in official Roman policy. Emperor Domitian, Titus's successor, began his reign by introducing a special tax called Fiscus Judaicus. This was a tax that was to be paid only by Jews in the empire, and which would be used to fund and maintain a pagan Roman temple to Jupiter. This tax was meant as a double-edged insult, being both a financial burden and a stark reminder to the Jews that they and their religion were second class. At around the same time as the Fiscus Judaicus was introduced, anti-Jewish propaganda also began to spread throughout the empire, propagated by prominent Greek and Roman thinkers of the time. Some of the more famous of these included Tacitus, a Roman historian and politician, and Apion, an Alexandrian librarian. Their messaging was designed to take real Jewish practices and twist them in absurd and disgusting ways in an effort to encourage Jew hatred by the Roman population. As a result of this propaganda, everyday Romans began to believe that Jews were sexual perverts who constantly preyed on non-Jewish women and whose ritual of circumcision was only meant to heighten their sexual impulses. The Jews were said to avoid pork because they worshipped pigs, a filthy animal. And the explanation for Shabbat being a day of rest was that, while wandering in the Sinai desert after leaving Egypt, the Jews had developed painful groin tumors, which were apparently hereditary, forcing them to rest every seventh day. Tacitus wrote that Jews, quote, only have hate and enmity for the rest of mankind, and that, quote, the Jews regard as profane all that we hold sacred, permitting all we abhor. And, as if that weren't enough, both Apion and Tacitus invented a tale of a Greek traveler who was abducted by Jews, fattened up a bit, and then led into the woods to be slaughtered and eaten. This was not only the earliest fable linking Jews with classic themes of witchcraft, think Hansel and Gretel, but also foreshadowed the blood libel, which would become a prominent anti-Jewish trope in the coming years.
The Roman Empire was quickly becoming a dark and dangerous place for Jews. But, as we have seen, ancient Jews did not tend to take oppression and bigotry lying down. And so, unsurprisingly, as open anti-Jewish racism began to flourish across the Roman Empire, Jewish revolts began to occur more and more frequently. The two largest and most famous of these revolts were the Quitos Rebellion and the Bar Kokhba Revolt. But, in order to understand what led to these uprisings, we must embark on a classic geopolitical update. In the early 2nd century CE, two empires had taken hold of much of the Middle East and Mesopotamia. The first of these was the Roman Empire, which we got to know well in Season 1, and which by this time had become absolutely massive. Its territory spanned the entire coast of North Africa, encompassed all of Egypt, Judea, and its surrounding territories, stretched as far east as Mesopotamia, and swept upward through Turkey and into southern Europe, reaching as far as Spain and Britain. The second prominent empire of the time was the Parthian Empire, which had emerged as a small tribe that had rebelled against the Seleucids in the 2nd century BCE, and whose territory by this time stretched from the Roman Empire's eastern border all the way east through modern-day Iran into Afghanistan and Pakistan. Between the two empires sat Mesopotamia, which became the primary battleground on which the two empires fought for dominance. The most relevant of the Roman-Parthian conflicts to our story took place in the first decade of the 2nd century CE, when the Roman Emperor Trajan invaded and conquered both Armenia and northern Mesopotamia, claiming them as Roman territory. But the following year, in 115 CE, the Parthians replaced the Roman-installed king of Armenia with their own ruler, without consulting the Romans first. The Romans saw this as a direct threat to Roman sovereignty in the region, and Emperor Trajan took 10 legions, around 50,000 men, and marched southeast into Mesopotamia to put the Parthians in their place. Now, remember that by this time, Jews had been living in Mesopotamia for over 500 years, ever since the Babylonians had taken Jerusalem's elite as prisoners of war in the late 500s BCE. Mesopotamia then came under Greek rule in the mid-4th century, and in the middle of the 2nd century BCE, it was taken by the Parthians, just as the Maccabean Revolt was underway in ancient Judea. Compared to the Greeks and Romans, the Parthians were quite respectful of the Jews and left them alone so long as the Jews supported them in times of war. This fairly harmonious relationship between the two groups led to several centuries of peace for the Jews in Babylon and meant that the Mesopotamian Jews did not have to think too hard about which side to support when Emperor Trajan came marching into Babylon with his Roman legions they promptly took up arms and joined the Parthians on the battlefield. At the same time as this Jewish-supported Parthian-Roman war was underway in Mesopotamia, Jews across the Eastern Roman Empire were also rising up against their Roman rulers. In the city of Cyrene, in modern-day Libya, a local Jewish leader named Andreas and his band of Jewish rebels began defacing Roman temples and other public buildings. This guerrilla army then took their rebellion eastward into Egypt, where there was a convenient absence of Roman soldiers, who had all marched east to confront the Parthians. Andreas's Jewish rebel force was nearly successful in taking over all of Egypt. Meanwhile, similar Jewish uprisings were occurring throughout Syria and in Cyprus, where a Jewish rebel army slaughtered much of the non-Jewish population. This widespread Jewish rebellion actually became a major problem for the Romans. So much so that, 
After they had successfully defeated the Parthians, Emperor Trajan appointed a general named Lucius Quietus, or Quitos in Hebrew, to quash the Jewish resistance movement and restore order. Quitos was actually born to a royal family of Berber, or Imazigan, lineage. The Berbers were an ethnic group indigenous to North Africa. His father and his warriors had supported Rome against a North African uprising, and in return was offered Roman citizenship. Quitos ended up joining the Roman army as a young man, and after a series of military triumphs, ultimately became a military general for the Romans. And so, Quitos did as Emperor Trajan commanded, and clapped back fiercely against the Jewish rebels. He and his army marched through Egypt, burning the great synagogue of Alexandria, looting Jewish spaces and massacring much of Egypt's Jewish community. Andreas, the Jewish rebel king from Cyrene, fled back to Judea and was ultimately killed by a later Roman general. As a reward for his success in quashing the Jewish rebellion, Quitos was sent back to Judea and appointed governor there, where he continued to commit acts of violence against the Jewish population. As for Emperor Trajan, he ultimately died on his long march home from Mesopotamia, and was succeeded by a man named Hadrian, of Hadrian's Wall fame. Hadrian, in an attempt to prevent future uprisings, banned Jews from Cyprus and Syria and repatriated them back to Judea. He initially lured them back with the promise to rebuild the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, but he soon changed his tune and instead built a Roman city on the site, which he called Aelia Capitolina. To add insult to injury, in the place where the second temple had once stood, he began construction of a Roman temple to Jupiter. After the Quitos War, things for the Jews pretty much went back to the status quo. They continued to live mostly under Roman rule, and anti-Jewish racism remained rampant. And so, it wasn't long, just 15 years in fact, before another Jewish revolt erupted. It's not entirely clear what sparked this next surge of rebellion, but it may have been related to Emperor Hadrian's building of a Roman city on the ruins of Jerusalem, plus the fact that one of Judea's Roman governors had ordered the execution of Rabbi Akiva, one of the community's most prominent and beloved rabbis. Whichever the reason, the Jews decided to take up arms. Information about this revolt comes largely from letters that have been excavated, written to and by the leader of this revolt himself, a man named Shimon bar Kosiba, as well as other artifacts from the period. By all accounts, Shimon bar Kosiba was quite an observant Jew, and was, or at least claimed to be, a direct descendant of King David. He was a strict observer of Shabbat, adhered closely to the ban on graven images set out in the Torah, and wore fringed clothing colored with techelet, an ancient deep blue dye commonly used in the making of priestly clothing. He was known to have been a real stickler, having high expectations of those who followed him, and exacting harsh penalties when his orders were not followed. But despite his rigid style of command, he was also a highly charismatic man, so much so that Rabbi Akiva gave him the nickname Bar Kochba, meaning son of a star in Hebrew. This nickname was both a clever play on his last name and an allusion to a passage in the Book of Numbers, essentially implying that Shimon might be the Messiah. The aim of Bar Kochba's rebellion was ultimately to drive the Romans out of the Jewish homeland and restore Jewish sovereignty. But compared to the somewhat haphazard nature of the Quitos War, Bar Kochba took steps to ensure that his rebellion was highly organized. He divided up the territory he conquered into clearly defined sections, 
and collected taxes from his followers in order to finance the revolt. As a symbolic act, he even had Roman coins heated and re-imprinted to form coins of his own, which read, For the Freedom of Jerusalem. This organized strategy seemed to pay off, and Bar Kokhba's revolt was actually immensely successful. At its peak, the Jewish rebels had recaptured almost all of Judea and Samaria, having made their capital at the village of Betar in the modern-day West Bank. Only Galilee and Jerusalem remained under Roman control. The revolt became such a problem that Emperor Hadrian himself ultimately had to step in, bringing in top generals from Britain and 50,000 reinforcements to help push back the Jewish rebel force. It took a full three years of fighting before the Roman soldiers were finally able to push Bar Kokhba and his force back from their capital at Betar toward a series of caves near the Dead Sea in the Judean desert. In 135 CE, the revolt was finally put to rest by the Romans. As retribution for their rebellion, Emperor Hadrian gave Judea, the Jews' ancestral homeland, a new name, Syria-Palestina, in an attempt to erase any trace of their history there. He also banned many Jewish practices, including Torah study, circumcision, and Shabbat observance, and forbade Jews from entering the city of Jerusalem, a devastating blow. Thankfully, Hadrian's rule only lasted another three years, and in 138 CE, Antonius Pius became the next emperor. Pius viewed Jews a bit more favorably than Hadrian, and repealed the bans on Jewish observance, restoring Judaism to its previous status as a religio licita. His view on outside religions was much like that of the early Greeks, Persians, and Parthians. As long as the Jews paid taxes and were loyal subjects of Rome, they would be left alone to practice whatever religion they pleased. But Jews were still not completely viewed as equals. They were still forbidden from entering the city of Jerusalem except for one day a year, the 9th of Av, the fast day commemorating the destruction of the Second Temple. With Jews banned from Jerusalem and the Temple destroyed, Jewish life and organization would have to shift in significant ways. Prior to the First Roman-Jewish War, Jerusalem had been the center of Jewish life. It was the home of the Temple and the high priests, who were the overseers of Jewish religious law, as well as the Sanhedrin, which functioned as a Jewish court of law. But now, with the city destroyed and the Jews banished, something new was needed to fill the void that the disappearance of the Temple and high priesthood had left behind. It was ultimately Yochanan ben Zakkai, founder of the first yeshiva at Yavne, who came up with a solution. He and his followers established a new institution called the Rabbinate, which was essentially a council of rabbis with one principal leader who were responsible for implementing Jewish law and who acted as representatives of the Jewish community to the Romans. The Rabbinate's initial success depended on the fact that it seemed to be a pretty good compromise for both Romans and Jews. For the Roman Empire, the rabbis, who were largely peaceful and did not directly challenge Roman authority, seemed a perfectly acceptable group to represent the Jews in Rome. And, for the Jews, the rabbis represented a return of Jewish leadership, which had not been seen since the end of the Bar Kokhba revolt. Over its first decades, the rabbinate, under the leadership of Rabbi Ben Gamaliel, established a Jewish high court, which soon became known as the Patriarchate, a political, religious, and legal body whose leader was called the Patriarch, a position typically filled by an eminent rabbi. It is not clear exactly when the evolution from rabbinate to patriarchate truly began, 
but many scholars believe that it was sometime during the reign of the Severan dynasty, a succession of Roman emperors descended from Septimius Severus, who ruled from 193 to 235 CE. The Severan emperors were fairly tolerant of the Jews, and there is evidence that the patriarchs were actually quite chummy with the various Severan emperors. Inscriptions on synagogues of the period attest to the friendship between the Jews and Romans, and there are mentions of the patriarch in writings of early Christian fathers and in imperial edicts written by the Roman emperors themselves. The patriarch himself seemed to have a significant amount of power in Roman Jewish society, both religious and spiritual. He was responsible for establishing the dates of the Jewish holidays and fast days, was the head of the Beit Din, or Jewish court of law, and as such he had the power to banish members of the community, appoint judges, and pass sentences on accused criminals. The patriarch could also nominate members of the Archisynagogos, or Council of Rabbis, and was even allowed by the Romans to impose a special tax on Jews living in the diaspora to help fund the patriarchal activities and houses of study. Under the Patriarchate and the emperors of the Severan dynasty, the Jews of the Roman Empire found stable ground and were allowed to maintain a relatively fruitful existence. The Jews of Syria-Palestina engaged in many trades, fishing on the northern coast, growing grapes for wine and farming olives for oil, selling pottery, textiles, and other wares, and engaged in robust trading relationships with neighboring territories. Jewish towns also began to develop new ways of organizing themselves as they multiplied and grew. Each town or village would have local leaders appointed, called archons, who were in charge of carrying out the proclamations of the patriarch. Each village also had seven judges in residence, who were in charge of both legal administration and the upkeep of public property, such as synagogues. As Jews began to migrate from town to town, some rules of local citizenship began to develop. After living in a town for three months, you had to start contributing to the community's tzedakah fund. And, after one year, you started to have to pay formal taxes. During the reign of Emperor Severus and his immediate successor, Caracalla, the reigning patriarch was Rabbi Judah I, son of Rabbi Gamaliel II. Judah is credited with contributing significantly to the codification of the Mishnah and appeared to be quite close with Emperor Caracalla. The emperor seemed to recognize him as a legitimate judge and leader, and in this capacity he made several legal decisions in an attempt to improve Jewish attitudes towards Rome, including the abolishing of the fast day of Tisha B'Av. Judah's relationship with the Roman Empire was so meaningful that the empire set aside a large tract of land in Syria for Judah and his descendants to hold in perpetuity. One of the most significant religious undertakings of the Patriarchate was to get together and write down what they felt should be the official rules of Jewish practice. This codification of Jewish law eventually became the Mishnah and was later compiled, along with some commentary and supplementary texts, into what was called the Jerusalem Talmud. The Talmud became the guidebook to Jewish law and life and started to be widely circulated across Syria-Palestina. And, now with a more standardized interpretation of Jewish law, more standardized Jewish education was established. The primary means of teaching Talmud was through Jewish day schools and in synagogues. Jewish boys, and in rare cases girls, would attend primary school beginning at the age of five or six 
where they would begin by learning the Torah. By the age of 10, they would then advance to learning the Mishnah, and finally, in mid-adolescence, to learning the additions that make up the Talmud. This last part would be done at special schools called yeshivot, essentially post-secondary Jewish education. Not every boy made it to this post-secondary stage, but enough did that by the mid-4th century, yeshivot began to pop up in other cities like Lida, Caesarea, Sephoris, and Tiberias. Not only was the Talmud a core theological text, but it also gives us clues as to what Jewish practice looked like in Jerusalem at the time. Based on a historical reading of the Jerusalem Talmud, synagogues of the patriarchal period seem remarkably similar to today's shuls. On Shabbat, men and women would get all doled up in the latest fashions, women wearing headbands or tiaras, nose rings, ankle chains, head bangles, fancy pins, and carrying boxes of perfume or spices. And men would show up in battle wear, including studded sandals and sometimes even helmets and armor. All of this high fashion was looked down on by the rabbis, who preferred simpler temple attire. The synagogues themselves were funded by wealthy community members, often merchants, dyers, and doctors, who donated money to have murals painted and for general temple upkeep. Services in Jerusalem synagogues were conducted in Hebrew, although it seems that there were sometimes just as many Jews gossiping or snoozing in shul as were actually praying. Bowing seemed to have been a central feature of Jewish prayer at the time, and separation between men and women had not yet entered into Jewish practice. It would not become commonplace until the Middle Ages. Of course, as had been the case for centuries, synagogues continued to function as community centers and accommodations for visiting Jews, as well as houses of prayer. As it happens, a number of these synagogues still stand, and reveal one of the more remarkable features common to synagogues of the period. One of the earliest synagogues to be excavated was found in the northern city of Tsipori, or Sephoris, a largely Jewish city of the time that housed a number of wealthy families. The synagogue there has been dated to the late 300s CE, and is particularly notable for its intricate mosaic floor. The mosaic images depict both classical objects of Judaica, like Minorot, Shofrot, and tableaus of various Bible stories, but also includes some decidedly more pagan imagery, including a wheel of the zodiac, calendar girls, and even some Greek gods like Helios, the Roman sun god, which was probably understood as a representation of, or metaphor for, the Jewish god. As strikingly non-Jewish as these symbols may seem to us now, the very same themes and images actually occur widely in synagogues of the period. A total of 40 diaspora synagogues have been excavated, all with mosaic images on their floors. The sheer number of these decorated synagogues makes clear that this kind of synagogue decoration was not the exception, but rather the rule in 1st to 3rd century Jerusalem. On the other side of the Jewish world, another lavishly decorated synagogue has been found in the city of Jura Europos, dated to 240 CE. Dura was a city located in Parthian-ruled Mesopotamia, in what is now eastern Syria, and was extremely multicultural, including a significant population of Jews. In the time since their arrival in the late 500s BCE, the Jewish population in Mesopotamia had flourished and developed its own unique culture and traditions. Just like with the Patriarchate in Roman-occupied Judea, the Parthians had appointed a Jewish leader of their own, called an exilarch to be the Jewish representative to the Parthian government. 
Mesopotamian Jews also began to develop their own version of the Talmud, which was completed in 5 to 650 CE, and is known as the Babylonian Talmud. What was so important about the Mesopotamian Jewish community was that, while the Roman Empire was becoming increasingly hostile to Jews, Mesopotamia was becoming a testing ground for how adaptable the newly codified Judaism of the Mishnah was to a diaspora population. Many of the laws that had been established by rabbis in Judea and laid out in the Jerusalem Talmud were changed or modified in Mesopotamia. But the principles of Israel being the chosen people, Jewish law and institutions remained intact, ensuring continuity. In Mesopotamia, strong yeshivot and day schools were set up, and during the spring and fall time, when agricultural work was at its slowest, study courses called kala were held for school alumni. The two great Babylonian yeshivot at the cities of Sura and Pembedita were established around 219 CE by Rav Abba Arika and Samuel Bar Abba, two great Babylonian sages. In 224 CE, five years after the establishment of the Babylonian yeshivot, the ancient house of Sasan, a prominent Persian family, overthrew the Parthians to take control of Mesopotamia for themselves. The new Sasanian Empire brought with it a huge renaissance of Persian culture, nationalism, and a new state religion, Zoroastrianism. The Sasanids would continue to rule in Mesopotamia until 651 CE. And that's where we'll leave off for this week, with Jewish culture flourishing under Roman Syria, Palestina, and Sasanian ruled Mesopotamia. Coming up, a look at the Jewish diaspora. That's next week on The Jewish Story.